0: Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from his son our Lord and savior Jesus Christ who by the way have you heard Christ is risen he is risen, risen indeed. indeed hallelujah hope you did that really loud in your house um, um and i hope your i hope your neighbors heard that One of my favorite stories is from somebody who I uh, studied chaplaincy with at the Cleveland Clinic who was a student at Trinity Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. He shared with me a story, I don't know how true it is, it sounds a little bit like a legend, but it's about the great evangelist of the 20th century, Billy Graham. Apparently Billy Graham had come to Trinity Seminary to speak and when he was dining with the faculty, Uh, Like good Lutheran faculty, they started laying in to Billy Graham, explaining how a lot of the theological assumptions that the great evangelist worked under were false, how he was leading people astray, and how his preaching was not as biblical as he thought it was. Billy Graham, ever the gentleman, sat and listened and went, you know, I've learned a lot today. You all have made some really excellent points. But at the end of the day, I prefer the way that I'm doing things to the way that you are not doing them. For me, that has always been a story I've held close to my heart, because when I hear that story, I have no doubt that I would have probably been on the side of the faculty at Trinity Seminary for me, Christianity sometimes is more a exercise of the head than of a heart. And at times in this church, I've talked to very many people who feel that the church is, is somehow stuck. How there's not energy and how the church is not living up to this accusation that it receives in our lesson from Acts today that it is turning the world upside down. And this is true about Christianity. It's not a set of ideas or a set of practices. Christianity is at its core an announcement. If you hear that announcement, that is all you need to have to be a christian and that announcement is the same one that we have been making these past couple weeks together apart when we say that christ is risen he is risen indeed hallelujah i've got a very small congregation today so i'm counting on you for a lot and this announcement whenever we make it whenever we proclaim it this announcement changes things now, when this announcement was first made, we, we have the story in the book of Acts. And the critics of this movement said what these people are doing is turning the world upside down. But how did this happen? You'll notice your biggest clue in our story today. So when Paul and Silas came to this uh, large town... Thessalonica, which was the capital, by the way, I know you have fast-forward buttons now, so I'm not going to go too into this, but Thessalonica is the capital of this Roman state of Macedonia uh, where they have a very large Jewish community. They had a synagogue. Uh, Paul and Silas go in there, and Paul is probably not invited up to the pulpit to preach, but he is kind of on the margins disputing with the leaders and saying, the one who I am proclaiming to you who is risen is Jesus, is the Messiah. And you have to notice who hears it and who follows Paul because of it. We are told that it was pious Greeks and leading women. These are not the people who would have been sitting in the front row at the synagogue. These are the people that would have been pushed somewhere, I know we love this word in church, on the margins, but they would have literally been on the margins. First, pious Greeks didn't mean uh, just people of uh, Greek heritage. It meant that anybody who was not Jewish, anybody that couldn't trace their bloodline back to Israel or back to one of the 12 tribes, those people would have been kept outside They would not have been invited to places of honor in the synagogue. And even more, the women would have been kept on that outside area. So this message, and this is where, if you're a Lutheran, maybe you can start to feel better about yourself. This message is heard first by the people in the back of the church, which is exactly why that all of you, when you come, you sit in the back of the church, right, in solidarity. Is it solidarity? I I, I doubt it, right? The people who heard this message First were the people in the back rows, were the people who were told they were not pure enough, the people who were told that they couldn't get close enough, the people who maybe were made to feel like they weren't good enough, and maybe the people who were invited in but not too much in. Those were the first people who started grasping this message of Jesus. Pious, uncircumcised Greeks who had heard the story of the God of Israel and had been compelled about his message of love and justice for the neighbor. And then leading women in the synagogue community who, uh, and I'm sure this is nothing like today, uh, who were shut out of those places of power and leadership. And that was sarcasm, uh, by the way. And overall, in this entire city, it was a city full of working people who were native, and this commercial class had come in with the rise of the Roman Empire, with the rise of the emperors. So this message would have resonated with the working classes, and it would have been very fearful to those commercial classes who were in power. So the ones who were in power in the synagogue knew exactly what they were doing when they said these people are a bunch of rabble-rousers, these people are a bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters, these people are a bunch of people who are going to overthrow the entire system. You'll notice when we translate this, turning the world upside down, we're doing that very poetically. The proper translation is these people are assaulting the empire. These people are assaulting the way things are. And why are they doing that? What was their evidence? They said they, against the decrees of the emperor, are saying that there is another king named Jesus. That's what it meant to turn the empire upside down. That if death had been defeated, maybe some of those other dark powers were going the same way. This was a message of hope that was held onto by people that needed it for them when they said christ is risen he is risen indeed. hallelujah it was not something to piously say in their easter best or in their pajamas as you are this morning it was something that they meant as a revolutionary war cry hopefully i've helped you hear acts a little bit but it always gets sticky when we apply it to today. And it is even stickier now. Now often, the entire movements in the history of the church have used these stories and acts as a kind of measuring stick to see how the church is doing. That was definitely in Billy Graham's mind when he met with the uh, when he met with the faculty at Trinity Seminary, right? This is supposed to turn the world upside down. There's supposed to be movement. There's supposed to be action. This is why some Christians prefer to worship where they can get together in a large stadium, and we'll talk about this in Bible study today. For those of you sticking around, uh, they, they want to have community that way. Some Christians want to see chains broken, and, and all of this is very pious and very good, except... Right now, we are living in a world that has already been turned upside down. We are living in a world where pain is being felt across the spectrum and not just by those of us looking at our 401ks. Uh, many of you may have heard that station casinos uh, laid off all, all of their hotel presidents. Um, over the past week, there are shake ups coming in almost any industry and as you as you go down to to workers that are having to work at construction sites and meatpacking plants in and, and unsafe conditions, as there are schools and colleges looking at the bottom line, as there are uh, people who don't have homes and don't have families and don't have uh, community that, in this era of social isolation, are even more at risk. And maybe, maybe those of us who have been in quarantine for, quarantine for almost two months, maybe we are feeling it a little bit too. Our entire world has been turned upside down. I've been. Uh, Uh, I've been just kind of mumbling to myself and watching old baseball games on YouTube, (laughs) right? Uh, this, This is spring. It's supposed to happen now. And we just don't know what to do with this measuring stick when we're the church living in a world that's already been turned upside down. Now, I think it's very difficult, and I also think it's a little bit tone deaf now to uh, continue to kind of you know, push the world or to, uh, or to uh, continue to say, uh, you know, we need to overturn everything, right? That's tone deaf when everything's already been overturned. And, and what large sectors of the American church is doing is sometimes even worse. Right? Sometimes uh, there's this slogan that all of a sudden has been adopted uh, in Christianity, um, and it's, uh, there's even a song on SOS now about choosing joy. Uh, and we think, well, our job now is just to show that because we have Jesus, we can be positive and happy in the midst of this. Now, that makes you even more tone deaf to the people who are really suffering, and I'm going to shatter all that for you today by telling you that you can't choose joy, by telling you that if you are positive without looking at the reality of the world around you, if your Easter Sunday does not involve seeing the cross that you bear and the cross that other people bear, what you are clinging to is a false gospel. We've gathered during this time together, apart, via the Internet, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for letting the Internet work. We know you're the best technician. What we've gathered to do is to share hope. And hope is so much greater than positivity. Positivity is just kind of a, a, a mental trick. It's a, a, a mental attitude. It's the exact opposite of hope. Hope does not come from within. The hope comes from the outside. It's the hope that we declare when we say Christ is risen. He is, he is risen, risen indeed. indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? And you find the anatomy of this hope in the letter that Kent read to you today from Paul to the Thessalonians. He talks about where their hope comes from. He shares where to look for that hope, fully aware of the oppression that they're feeling. If you read the rest of the letter, he talks about the necessity of love, even in the midst of affliction. He talks about the necessity of having faith and trusting in God, even though when you have turned away from the gods of your neighbors, you do nothing but suffer. He talks most of all about having hope in what Jesus is still able to accomplish because of Easter Sunday. I do. We're going to read it the next couple of weeks, but I do commend you to read the entire letter. This is Uh, uh, If Philippians, those of you who went to Bible study uh, learned about Philippians, is the letter of joy. 1 Thessalonians is the letter of hope. And he lays the groundwork for what it is in three ways. First, you have to know what hope is not. Hope is not saying it's all going to be okay. And hope is not trying to uh, take the lemons that life has given you and make lemonade, right? If you, during quarantine, have you know learned five new habits and you've sewn like eight quilts and you've learned a language, that's great. Um, I don't know if you don't have kids, or you don't want to have kids, or you maybe haven't had kids yet. Uh, I salute you, <laughs> right? Um, hope is not trying to make the best out of your uh, out of your situation. Hope comes in a word, and not just a word that is like a slogan, right? I think this is a great way to translate that. It didn't come to you in just a word only. Hope didn't come to you because one day you said, you know what, I'm going to choose joy. No, hope came to you because you received it in affliction with great joy. Hope came to you because with wide eyes you knew what was going on in your life. You knew where you were suffering, and you knew where your neighbors were suffering. The second way home comes is it's not based on anything that we do or that we enact on our own. Right? Paul says it clearly here. He says it's not just by a word, not just by a slogan, but by the Holy Spirit with power. So this is the key when we realize what hope is. Hope isn't just saying, well, I'm going to repeat this mantra and then my life is going to be better. Remember that movie, American Beauty, where the wife would just listen to those tapes, and I'm probably dating myself already now, right, and say, I'm not a victim, I'm not a victim. This isn't... This isn't hope, that's more darkness. What hope is, is a word that comes outside of you that has consequences for you and for your life. The hope comes from a word that wasn't just written down as a mantra for you to say, but a word that lives and breathes, and that word is Jesus Christ who is coming to you, and this is the most important part. We always think of hope as living either in some past or in the far future, right? So when we say Christ is risen, we might think... He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Right. You guys have to keep me entertained while I'm doing this, right? <laughs> when, we, when we say that, we might think we are, we are thinking about some kind of a past event that was really nice uh, and really good, and we can put some kind of future capital on that, right? It becomes a, a future insurance policy like Christ's, Christ lives so that when we die, we get to live too, right? We think of, of Easter being something in the past that maybe impacts the future, and it is. But even more, listen to what Paul says in the Thessalonians. Paul says at the very end of the passage we read, Jesus is the one saving us from the wrath to come. You have to, English majors have to pay, and everybody else, you have to pay attention to your tenses when you read scripture, right? This is in the present tense. Too bad we're not Totally on Facebook Live, I can do a poll question. Right? The present tense says that this is happening right now. And so we don't say Christ was risen. We don't say Christ will be risen. We say Christ is risen. And then we say, He is risen risen indeed. indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. President Clinton, this is what is means. Is means right now in our lives, right? Jesus is already acting. And this is a beautiful word that he uses, President Trump. It's a beautiful word. It is a word that is uh, what you would use in a comic book about a superhero, right? When uh, Lois Lane falls off the plane and Superman is there to catch her, that's that Greek word, rule mine. He is mind Lois Lane. And in the same way, Jesus is doing that same thing to us. Jesus is saving us, delivering us, guarding us, and protecting us. It is the word that is used for what God does in Exodus when he swallowed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And it is the word that is used for that beautiful hope when the Messiah would come saying he will be the one who is called the rule He is the one who will come as Redeemer. So Jesus, the hope that we have is a hope for right now where Jesus is working now, is working in real time and working through our actions. And if you want to see evidence of that, just think about any hospital in the country that is overrun right now where people are stepping up, putting that PPE on and caring for them. Think about those places that are working to make sure that we are fed, those delivery drivers who are stepping up every day. Think of that saving activity. And Jesus is there blessing that and strengthening that. Jesus is there giving hope when people are left in this disease to die alone. Jesus is giving faith faith for people to gather around. Jesus is present. Jesus is quarantined with you right now. Jesus is a power that is at work in us and around us, and it is God's activity and not ours. Jesus belongs to us now, and that's how you have hope. You have hope because it comes to you in the midst of what you're struggling with. You have hope because it's not just a slogan. It's not just a choice. You have hope because joy chooses you. Joy rose from the dead for you, and most of all, you have hope. Because it comes to you right now in the one who is risen and walking. And I have witnessed that so many times when I, as a pastor, have been privileged. I used to think you you went to seminary and you became a pastor to like help people have faith. I was dead wrong. You become a pastor to witness to faith. I saw that no more powerfully. And in one of my patients, I'm a hospice chaplain in my day job, for those of you who don't know that, and very early on I had a patient who was uh, who was a wonderful lady and her husband was a wonderful man. They had been together for decades and they passed the point where they were finishing each other's sentences. You were there and you felt that they were a couple. You felt that they had life as one. And, and she was declining and their faith was such that Jesus was going to bring them healing. And this always causes a lot of consternation and it did for me because, you know, I, I certainly prayed with them for that healing. I prayed even more in Thanksgiving. Uh, but you see the medical chart, and very rarely have I seen anybody heal from what she had. And uh, the rest of the staff always gets a little bit nervous. Oh my gosh, this is going to break somebody if uh, they really are expectant of God to deliver healing in it, and it doesn't happen. I, you know, one uh, I hope she's not watching, but one nurse practitioner just uh, would really get fired up about you know trying to disprove somebody <laughs> their hope of uh, of healing because she just worried so much clinically about what would happen to somebody that they might lose their faith on top of losing their loved one. But while I was thinking and using my best theological training to think about how to have a conversation with this man, as as his wife grew closer and closer to dying, and uh, I heard she was about to transition, and I went uh, to their home, and his daughter let me in, and he was just sitting there holding his wife's hand. And he looked at me and said, I'm glad you're here, because I believe that prayer changes things. And... We, of course, said a prayer that was part lament, that was part hope, and we, uh, we just prayed our guts out together. And he really didn't say anything. He was thankful that I was there. And uh, after she died, I, I called, not knowing exactly what I would call and find out. And when I called him about two days later. He said, you know, I still believe that prayer changes things. Prayer is changing me. Even now, that was a faith that continued to burn brightly despite the circumstance. That was a hope. He didn't have necessarily all of his chips. It's a Vegas analogy, right? He didn't have all his chips bet on the fact that God would somehow miraculously raise his wife. All his chips were on the resurrection. Prayer changes things, he told me. I still believe that. I need to believe that. And I'm going to keep praying for my wife. I'm going to keep praying for you. And I've since lost contact with him. Uh, but he works as a hospital chaplain now, sharing that same faith with others, that prayer changes things. And so when we say Christ is risen, he is, is risen, risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What we mean is that this changes things, that when we proclaim that, we are not just sharing a little historical anecdote about our faith. What we are doing is proclaiming that things are changing. Even more, we are proclaiming that Christ rose so that Christ could be present with us and is present with us and is Present with you, and you might even say that when we proclaim Jesus Christ risen, we prefer the way that Christ is doing things to the way that we and all our false hopes are not doing them. Christ is risen, brothers and sisters. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.